everyone. Welcome to episode 10 of the Board Game Gambit podcast. Today's episode is IP Games, Successes and Fails. Today, you are joined by me, your host, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Welcome, everyone. So I particularly wanted to talk about IP games because just as of recently, I've been noticing more and more IP games have been flooding my social media feeds about upcoming games. So ones in particular that I recently saw are Scooby-Doo. That's really weird because I don't know, like that's such an old cartoon that it's weird that it's becoming popular now. I think in popular culture, we're trying to look back at simpler times and really like look back at the things that were popular. I mean, I guess that's always kind of been the case, but especially currently, it seems like we're running low on fresh ideas. Well, there is certainly a nostalgia factor, but I think it's also the reason that games with IP have been getting better over the years, because they don't need to follow the trend, right? I thought when you mentioned new games flooding your social media wall, basically, you were talking about the Back to the Future game. Oh, I haven't even seen that. It's another one by the Prospero people, the one that did Jaws and Horrified and all of that jazz and it's the same it's not new by any chance it's not even one of those that keeps getting a sequel the sequels are also quite old at this point so it's not like (laughs) oh another one is coming out this summer or anything like that you know it might (laughs) it might fair enough but at least that's not how it's marketed right and i think that and we will get into that when we get why ip games are even a thing but i think nostalgia taking the place of current hot topic has actually improved the design space for people who do tackle that. And so I I, I am actually very happy to see that we're moving away from the new Avengers is coming out and therefore we need a game about the Avengers to, okay, what's popular? What can we work on? that is established and well-known? So we'll see. So before we get more into the topic of today, we should discuss what have we played this week. So, Jackie, what have you played this week? Okay, I'll start with one of the very last that I played yesterday, and that was also the last one to come in the mail, although I had ordered it mid-April, I think. But then <laughs> it was on Amazon, it got stuck into the COVID delay, and then in the Royal Mail delay. It's It's the Road by Martin Wallace. So it is a couple of things that I usually don't like. It is a Martin Wallace game, which I'm generally not a big fan of. And it is a zombie game, which I am definitely not a fan of. But much like the only other zombie game that I really like, which is Run, Fight or Die, this is focused more on you getting through the things that you need to face zombies and keep moving. The nice thing about this is that when you hold the game in your hand, the cover is the cover of a fictional travel board game from the 50s that has been marked over by a kid in a post-apocalyptic zombie reality. And so it was it the road and he crosses out the the and he puts a z and he adds my zombie travel game and on the back cover the game is in shrink and it has a back cover about it's the road but when you open the shrink the back cover is just a piece of paper and the actual back cover of the box is about this fictional remodel game that the kid is working on. And so it's very cute. The pieces in the game that represent 
gas and adrenaline and bullets that you use to fight the zombies or escape the zombies are actually on bottle caps of different brands of sodas. And it's fun. Gameplay-wise, it's very simple. It worked fine with two. It would probably be much better with four. We had a demo of it a long time ago at Gen Con. Basically, every turn you flip four combinations of cards, three with three or two players, of two cards each. And basically, you bid for the right to go first to choose which one to pick. And these are a combination of things that you gain and zombies that you need to face and sometimes events. And there is a clever way of connecting events like, oh, this is a toxic zone. You can get through this, get whatever the card awards you, but you also get a mutation token or something like that. But it don't explain you what the token is. So you just know that you have had this event. And later on, other cards may trigger that. But if they don't come out, you are scot-free. And so it's a lot of, okay, how much can I pay not just to have what I want, but to force my opponents to get what they don't want? And the fighting the zombies takes like two seconds when you meet them. It's two rolls of dice. You're trying not to lose people and get to the end and win. It was fun. That sounds cute. I own it. So I will have to check it out. I have not played it yet. So again, with two, they have three areas and the third one is more expensive. So there is a penalty to it. But still with two, the bidding is a little weird. You bid with resources. But it's like I go two, you go three. Then I can go four to make you go five. But we are both spending a lot and just going back and forth. So it tends to be a little dry on that part. I can see with four being a lot, okay, if I go five, Nathan is forced to go six. But now Jim, who's at one, will be comparatively gaining a lot of resources, even if he ends up getting a very, very bad combination of cards. So have you played any of the big Martin Wallace brass and all of that? No, I was actually looking at his games just now, and I was like, I haven't played any of these. So what I was saying is that First of all, he's a very prolific designer, but also very wide in his approach to games. So the fact that I normally don't like any of his games is noticeable because he has done a lot of different, not only very well regarded, but also very different games. I feel that recently he has been into more dynamic things. And there are others that while I didn't particularly like, I didn't dislike either i would like to try the arrival which i never never saw but he has way too long of a ludography to mention in details but brass is certainly his masterpiece i would be interested in playing steam of his well they are in the same category right route building yeah and things like that i think i played steam i know i played tinder's trail i played a few acres of snow mitotopia so a lot of different games and this one is the only one for me, that that really clicked. Another one that I would like to try is Wildlands, which is basically a unique faction fighting it out on a, on a board. And I never saw it, but uh, it looks nice. What have you played? I have played uh, Chrono Corsairs. Oh, how was it? I liked it. Chrono Corsairs is a game where you are pirates in a time vortex anomaly situation. You are going across this island and you're discovering different things, and then the day resets. It's kind of like Groundhog Day, the movie. You're resetting the same day, so you know what's going to happen. You know that, oh, if I go to this section, it's going to give me money during this time 
And if I go to this section, I, I'm going to lose one of my people. So you want to really like just change up your plan. The problem is that each day that you go, you can only change your plan. So it's a programming game okay. of four actions. So you program the actions, but you can choose how to take them out. So in games like Lords of Seed It, it's very clear. You go, okay, I'm going along the black path. You program that path. And that's the only action. So you complete it out like a computer program. In this game, though, you are programming these actions. So you're like, okay, I'm going to move to a beach. But the way you take the action can be different. So sometimes there's more than one beach that you can go to. Sometimes you have options as far as, okay, I need to move this many people here because it's also an area majority game. Mm -hmm. So you want to have the most people in that area. So it's like, do I want to leave people behind? Do people have things that can come in and remove my people from the board? So there's a lot of that. I really liked it. I thought it was fun with two. We thought it was a little long mm-hmm. because unlike Lords of Seed It, Colonel Corsairs by John Breiger and Vincent Hertzel from Tasty Minstrel Games, even though you had the action programmed, you had many different ways to resolve it. And then sometimes if you couldn't do anything, you could still take money so you could even choose to forfeit the whole action i really liked it i thought it was very puzzly so i have a couple of questions the first one is are you limited in what action you can make for example you can you go to a beach only once per round or do you have enough cards or whatever mode you use to program that you can be flexible with your action so what you do at the beginning of each turn is you draw some stable cards and some unstable cards okay everyone looks through them And you pick one of them and you cover up the back and you reveal it into the place where you're going to play it. Okay. If any one person plays an unstable card, the game progresses faster. Okay. The time marker is this anomaly track. If anyone does an unstable thing, you're creating more anomalies. So it moves the tracker. Normally it's you go to the beach, you go to the forest, you go to the volcano, you go to a mysterious cave. Those are the basic things. And they're like already pre-printed on your board. These cards you place over them. So you're doing this action instead of that. So in theory, if you wanted to go to the beach, go to the jungle, go back to the beach, you could do that. But you would have to have the card and you would have to play it and you would have to forfeit going to a volcano. So that's what that kind of entails. Sounds very nice. It's definitely a hit with me. It looks very interesting. Very, very interesting. As often is the case with area control games, you know, there's a little bit more tension when you have more than one person that you're vying for control of an area with. And in a two-player game, it really seemed significant to be the second player because you could say oh yeah well nathan went with three people so i'm gonna follow him but leave four people and so he would just edge me out on certain things and get the higher bonuses yeah it's also pmg which usually makes very very solid games both design wise and graphic wise i'm really really curious about playing this i will wait and play it with you before buying it. But <laughs> I was already going on Miniature Market. It sounds extremely, extremely good. Speaking of game design and production, I got hold of Spectre Ops Broken Covenant, which is both a re-implementation and an expansion for Spectre Ops. You played Spectre Ops, the basic one, right? Uh, Shadow over Battle. Yep. 
Yep. So, so Spectre Ops, for those who haven't seen it, is to me the quintessential hidden movement game. It's basically played on a grid that represents a secret base and two or three hunter pieces because if you play with two players one player uses two of these hunters are trying to chase down and eliminate an agent which is moving secretly so he's not placed on the board he just marks down where he is and the other player players are trying to track him down but it's very bare bone in terms of rules line of sight is only vertical and horizontal rules are often based on how distant you are in terms of number of squares it's by emerson matsuchi it's still emerson's masterpiece in my opinion despite the fact that he has been very popular with eastern wonders trilogy and so the new edition slash expansion broken covenant was marred by production errors. Basically, this beautiful board, very well illustrated and UV spotted, has a couple of spots marked with the wrong number and letter, which I can confirm that absolutely does not impact gameplay because it's in a row. So you have A24, B24, C24, and then when you get to N, N is marked 29. But it's clear both to the people looking at the board and to the person holding the paper sheet with the right numbers that that's what it is. And so I think it got a bad rap for that. Uh, They're also sending replacement stickers, but beside that, it's certainly playable. At the same time, I only got it because it was super cheap. And it is a little steep to justify as an expansion because it offers you a new map which is a fantastic map but doesn't change the game drastically and it offers new characters for both sides with special abilities that are very interesting but again i was very happy to get it because we got it for a third of the price at 60 dollars retail price it's very steep so we played that it was interesting i really really like the game it's one of my top five games of all times really last time i tried yes although i feel like those things i use the pub meeple approach when i do it and i feel that every time i do it my top 15 they don't change necessarily (laughs) what games they are but they definitely change the order um yeah I think it always breaks down to the same is depending on the day, I have a very hard time ranking Aquasphere, Macau, and Tolkien. And so mm. the way the other games meet them determines whether they have a shot at the top <laughs> 10 or not. I, I'm always surprised by what games end up being up there. But when I look at it, I cannot say, oh, this is, was clearly a mistake. So Spectre Ops last time ended up in my top five, but I still think it's in my top five or ten of all times. I find it unique and it has everything that chess gives me without the negatives that I find in chess. I absolutely love it. I like Spectre Ops. I feel like I'm really bad at it. (laughs) In those kinds of games, I'm not the one that likes to hedge their bets for things. I'm like, okay, this person clearly went this way. And instead of like going somewhere in the middle of where I think someone might be, I usually go and gun for one direction. And then if it's wrong, you're if it's wrong, it's completely wrong. And people are like, oh, I'm over on the opposite side of the board. And I completed this objective. I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) But if it's right, it's amazing. And people are like, how did you know that I was there? And I'm like, oh, magic. Yeah, one thing that I like about Spectre Ops in particular compared to games that I did enjoy, like Fury of Dracula or Jaws or things like that, 
is that here there is a lot, because it's so streamlined, there is a lot of, oh, clearly the two good options are, I don't know, B4 and C7. But what if Nathan instead stayed put? And the way the line of sight works and the fact that you can only check whether you see your prey when you have moved makes it so that sometimes there are a lot of those moments of, oh, I really, really want to go there, but do I want to try and probably if I'm right, I'm, I, I'm winning this game. But if I'm wrong, I'm losing. Or I could go here, which doesn't get me this clear win if I do it, but still puts me in a good position. But if I'm wrong, at least I'm not losing it all, right? And it's one of those games that whatever side you play, it feels like it's tilted towards the other side. Like when you're running it, obviously they will find me and obviously they will gun me down. There is no way I can... Yeah, I can avoid them for a little bit, but they will find me. They have all these special powers. And vice versa, when you are chasing, you're feeling, oh, I have all of these special powers, and yeah, I can find them. But when you find your opponent once, the game is not over. You have to tag them four times or something like that. And so you feel like, oh, and they can just use this thing and run away. And often the game ends with you knowing where they are, but being out of range. So it's not just finding them. I like games where they are very asymmetric and whatever side you play, you feel like the other side is at an advantage and it's nice. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the Green Masquerade that we played together. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had played it before. And I was happy that we brought it out because Anna hadn't tried it and it's a kind of game. How would you summarize it? So it's a hidden identity game. Yeah, it's more of a deduction game than a social deduction game because right. you don't, yeah. You are one of the fairy tale creatures at a masquerade ball and you are playing cards to your opponents to try and give them cards that they fear or they don't like while avoiding giving them cards that would help them win you need three of the cards that you prefer to win the round and two of the cards that you have a fear of to be eliminated from the round and even when you're eliminated it's not completely eliminated you still are playing turns and you have the opportunity to sort of unmask people so i do like that part of it i think that that is smart that is one of my biggest criticisms of games like that that when you are like eliminated from the game and then the game goes on and on and on and you're just kind of sitting around waiting for other people to finish the round so i feel like that was really smart and i like that part of it we have never played the advanced variant with betting on who we think is going to win the round, but we have played just the regular game. I like it, though. I like the idea of it more than I like the game, I think. Well, first of all, it's super charming, both in theme and in presentation. And also, the gameplay is very smooth. You draw a card, assign it to someone, draw another card, assign it to you, or if you assign the first one to yourself, you give the other one to someone else. And I do like that you're not eliminated. I think where the game doesn't fully convince me is that what you mentioned that I also appreciate that in the single round you're not out when you lose uh, they went a little overboard with this idea of trying to keep everyone engaged and making maybe a more substantial game and the game plays over three rounds with an accumulation of points that 
first it seems to be weirdly balanced it seems like the last round is way more important than the other two despite playing exactly the same because you reset everything at the end of each round but also in general there is this tension that gets lost is okay we're narrowing down possibilities i am found out then nathan is found out and then i don't know scott wins the round and then we just reset and start over again and i feel that's where I would have liked for each round to be slightly longer, not much, but just be a self-contained experience. And I think that's actually a detriment because then even when you're playing the third round, which is super important because it gives just winning the round, you, you get points for figuring out who people are. And if you are the last one left unmasked, you get an additional five points in the third round. And the target to win the game is either having the most points or getting to 10. So the last round is hugely important. But even that is just yet another round of the same. And so I feel they could have maybe, I don't know how, I'm not saying I have the the, the fix in hand, but making the game a one narrative arc with a little more substance and call it, okay, this is the game. Much like last time i enjoyed it i didn't love it yeah i think that it's really not fair almost for the last round to be worth so much points when like you said you're not doing anything different the person who wins the first round gets less points than the person who wins the third round when nothing else has changed if you're playing with the powers when people are behind or get unmasked then i mean it makes a little bit of sense because they have more things to try and help them win that means that winning the third round could be easier than winning the one before if you have have power because you did poorly before so it should be even more of a reason to be worth less not more well but i think the hopes and dreams of the designers was that it gave everyone a fair shot at winning so that way if you were behind you still could come back and win the last round and come back from it all and beat everybody However, that was not the case in the game that we played because had scott won the final round he still would not have beaten us yeah. So that was kind of weird. I had not played a game of it like that before where someone could win everything and still not win. Yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I would play it. If you or anyone else wanted to play it, I wouldn't shy away, I wouldn't oppose, but I don't think I will ever hope that someone brings it. I think it, this could be a very good hit with people who are not into games in general. That's obviously a good introductory game, but also not into social deduction because there is not that much that you can try and really deduce from people's behavior. Because with the fact that you don't fully choose what to keep and what to give, often is, oh, they got the second card. This gives me absolutely no information on what they're trying to do because they had given the first card to someone else, so they had to take the second card. And so at the same time, that means that people who are really stressed out by, oh, I have to figure out who the trader is, I don't know who to trust, I don't know how to lie and all of that, this is a very good game for people who, who feel like that, but that still want that experience of, oh, I don't know who is what, and I want to try and figure it out. Yeah, I think that that is a really smart way of saying that. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I will (laughs) wear that uh, with honor. So another game that we brought out that I really liked is The Order of the Gilded Compass. 
mm-hmm. which I never remember the name of. I had to go and check. I, I always <laughs> think that is the Guild of the Golden Compass. <laughs> so I never find it. It's a dice placement game, but not in the new style of very thinky Euros a la Grandostre Hotel or Lorenzo. It's much simpler. Is You have your pool of dice and you roll them and then you decide how to place some of them and then when it comes back to you, you re-roll them and place a few other, etc. It's an evolution of a game called Las Vegas, where you are simply trying to create majorities on different casinos. Here, it's a little more tricky because some spots are majorities of one number, some spots you want to make pairs, some spots you want to make the longest straight, some others you are trying to place with specific number, pushing, bumping other people's dice out. And the theme is you are Indiana Jones kind of archaeologist, I guess. You are trying to enter ruins, but also plan your expeditions, getting cartographers and diggers and special missions and secret artifacts. And I find it fast, interesting. It has some control over your dice. So while sometimes rolling right the thing you need is good, but often uh, I feel that when I fail at this is more oh, I could have done that differently, or oh, if Nathan just hadn't done that. It happens, but you don't feel constantly, oh, I just needed to roll differently, which is, for me, the discerning factor between a game with dice that I like and a game with dice that I suffer through. Yeah, I like that game. It's at a good level of complexity, I feel like, because you have options to do different things. There's still, like, smart decisions that you have to make regarding like what you want to play and where you want to play it and the order in which you want to play things so it's a lot of fun and then you think that oh you know i'm gonna go to this place and no one no one cares for the spot you know i'll get what i want and then people all bombard you with (laughs) all of their dice and you're like what is going on Yeah, and also I like that the pace, you don't know exactly how many actions you will take because if someone places the dice faster and places a lot on the same spot, usually what happens when you place a lot of dice on one location is that you will have a very good choice at that location. But maybe it could be more efficient to have a little bit of dice in different places to have a lot of second or third tier choices rather than a couple of very good choices. However... By doing the concentrated dice, you're also putting pressure on other people because as soon as someone runs out of dice, everyone has to stop. feel like the dice are the main thing that you're doing in the game, but actually you are really, really playing the other players. It's a very, very interactive game in a way that other dice games are not for me. Yeah, it's good. I really like it. I do also like that there's the different buildings that you can choose from. So that feels different every time you play it. It gives it some significant replayability. Yeah, out of four buildings basically that you have, because another one is very automatic, one of them is double-faced. So two are fixed. One is double-faced, so you can play a different one every game. And another one is a choice out of four. So there are quite a few combinations that you play. Oh, I have realized that we haven't talked about our biggest gaming achievement. So we finally finished The King's Dilemma. Which is nominated for Spiel des Yeah, because we finished. So they felt it was topical to nominate it. <laughs> so The King's Dilemma is a legacy game, is actually the first legacy game that I played through completion. Well, we also just finished Clank Legacy, but King's Dilemma, which started 
earlier and it would have finished earlier if it hadn't been for the pandemic. It's a game by Jalmar Haak and Lorenzo Silva. It came out last year and you got it at Gen Con, right after Gen Con? I got it at Gen Con. And we started playing it in the fall and it was moving at a very quick pace. Then it slowed down. So The King's Dilemma is a very simple game in terms of mechanics. You read a card every round of the game that gives you the situation, and then people vote on a decision to make for the kingdom. And the vote is basically a bidding with different teams pairing up to bid on stuff. So if a lot of people want yes, they can spend less power, one of the two currencies of the game, to make the yes prevail. Obviously, if you are alone against everyone else, you will have to spend much more of your resources to make it prevail. And whenever a choice is made, it affects the board state, which is basically a series of tracks in a way that is usually predictable, although not fully. And you're trying to meet the goals of your secret cards and get points to win each individual game. So it feels very much like a choose your own adventure game, but with like gamer consequences, if that makes sense. You are collectively choosing a collective adventure (laughs) and then dealing with the repercussions of what choices you've made. Some of the interesting choices really shaped how the game play evolved and what story branches took place. So I thought that that was really interesting. We only went through like half of all the different story branches maybe less yeah and i think the the story part is brilliant i like narrative games so i have played a lot of games that bring you through a story sometimes more disjointed like eldritch horror where it emerges a very thematic story about the great enemy and a bunch of little stories on the board, sometimes more like an adventure book like Tainted Grail. I think The King's Dilemma's approach to storytelling is fantastic. Every time you make a choice, well, not every time, but some of those will open new narrative branches. For example, if you declare war to someone, or if you finance an expedition, or if a new person shows up in your kingdom. And so whenever this happens, the game calls for you to open a little envelope that contains other cards that get shuffled into the deck of possible events. So these are now things happening in your kingdom. And the card that you're drawing basically draws your attention to something so that you know what's going on in the kingdom, but you don't know what the next pressing matter will be. And that makes it feel very alive. Although I felt I never stopped thinking about it, but now thinking back in retrospect, the time span is weird because all of this works very well in, oh, we have these different crises and we don't know what the next step will be. But when you think that it's supposed to span 15 generations, the fact that you have a war that might be going on 15 generations later, or that there is, oh yeah, this person that four kings ago, we decided to give her some money to do experiments, she's now back. What is she, immortal? Yes. (laughs) But if you don't, go and try to break the narrative it really works well because you are constantly adding potential events and every time they come out they feel topical because you know why they are possible oh this is the expedition that we financed let's see what's happening or this person we decided to send them away instead of helping them and And now now they're back for vengeance yeah i mean (laughs) 
And that really, really works. I found it extremely well done. The story is well written, I think, is not written well enough that is always very engaging. And therefore, they could have shortened it a little bit on each card. Sometimes there are cards that are a full card and enough of narrative text. And while it's functional, it's nice, it's nicely written, etc., is not a masterpiece. So it's not, oh, yes, now I have this great narrative moment. Maybe sometimes shortening down, I much prefer the regular cards that have maybe a paragraph of text rather than yeah. the ones that introduce a new thing that go a little overblown. And often the person who was reading it, I noticed that whether it was you or me or someone else, would read through a little faster and someone else would zone out and say, okay, what's happening? (laughs) Because sometimes (laughs) it's a little long. But the cards with just one paragraph were sweet. As I said before, I think the main mechanism of the game, though, is not as interesting as it could be. I feel like some of the story parts of it were, I really liked the story. I thought that it was cool that We were making changes to this kingdom and it was really apparent that everything was connected, that the choices that we made really impacted what was happening. Did we always make the right decision for the kingdom? No, 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 no. (laughs) So that was kind of a little bit of a disconnect for me that sometimes what we pushed for was not morally or ethically sound, but it was used to further the agendas of our specific houses of the kingdom the other thing is that sometimes there were significantly better parts of the story there was one without getting into too much detail because again i don't want to spoil anything because a huge part of the experience of the game is the story but there was a point where we were lost and we were looking for an exit well that was so boring and it was painful We were sitting there and it was painful because it just kept going on and on and we were lost. We were (laughs) significantly lost. I thought it was cool that they tried to provide something different in that moment. But I think that the way that they did it, like what's the opposite of a slam dunk? It's like, I don't know, complete miss, air ball. Failure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, although now when you mentioned I knew exactly what you were referring to, I completely shared the sentiment. But even that, in my experience of the game, yeah, that came and passed. It's fine. It was a misstep. It took 20 minutes out of what would have been a good session and made it a mediocre session. But Only because we stopped. We stopped and we <laughs> we decided to just figure it out. Oh, fair enough to say, okay, let, let's go out of this. But I think, well, first of all, that was very poorly written because it's supposed to say, okay, let's stop this competitive thing and be cooperative for a moment. But there is one player that decides if you cannot find a consensus. So it's yeah. actually basically this person decides. But my problems were twofold with this game. And that's why I feel that I would be very careful and very clear on all of this before suggesting it to anyone. The first one is that, so you're managing these tracks and in each game, for different reasons, some that are public, some that are secret, and that works. Your objectives work, but you Mm -hmm. want these tracks to look a certain way. The problem is that often, first, the few times that it happens that the intended result is not what happens, is frustrating. Normally they match. Like if they say, oh, we can spend to have this new weapon, it means, okay, we'll spend money if we decide to do and increase our military. Mm. 
So the fact that they're usually very clear, although you don't know exactly how much the two tracks will vary, but you know that money will go down and military will go up if you choose to spend the money on that. When that doesn't happen, it can be very frustrating because that happened to Scott at least a couple of times where he invested Mm -hmm. a lot because, oh, I really need this thing to go up. He wanted money to go up. So he invested a lot of power to make that decision. He beat us. He renounced all of the advantages that you have in passing, in not caring, uh, which is another problem that some people had with the game, although not us so much, only to figure out that in that specific case, it was a little misleading. And yes, we didn't increase military, but instead of getting more money, we got more popularity or things like that. And that can be a really, really tough downside to a game where you only vote five to eight times per game. So it's not like a roll of a die in a two-hour game. It's a significant part of your gaming experience. Also, the other problem I had in the mechanic is the voting. The way it works is you go around the table once, but not really. You can come back if someone ties you, but only if one person ties you. If two people combine to tie your bid, you cannot overpay. I don't understand why they made that rule. It doesn't make the game any shorter because you simply move all of the negotiation before. Actually, it makes it more painful because it's, wait, if I go two, will it go three? No, wait, I go two. And while it would be much easier if people could simply keep going until someone decides that they have enough. And also it opens the door to a strategy of letting other people fight it out until I really, really care which if everyone approached it that way, it would make for a very boring game. And I've read reports of games where that happens, where one player sits out all of the time. And I understand the temptation. I was close to doing that. I think Anna sit back even more in the game. Yeah. But I was also often, well, I don't care. I'll pass and see what you guys figure out so I can can be bribed if I am the moderator. I can get money. I can get more power in case the important vote, because often there are votes that you don't particularly care about. And so that's the problem. Because if only a couple of players are involved in each thing, it means that a lot of people are just passing and seeing what happens. But I think the biggest dig against the game was the known clear end goal. So they clearly planned, and I'll try very hard not to spoil anything, but they clearly invested a lot on their game design on this grand finale where you get to the end and you don't throw away everything that you've done it's strictly based on what you've done through the campaign but there is a resolution moment and i felt that we should have known more i ended up winning the the campaign so i it worked well for me but in a way that I didn't particularly enjoy. It was a very convoluted finale with a lot of description of things that were happening, but with very, very messy resolution. It was, again, based on the hope of negotiation among players. The way it works is that the best you can achieve is if you are second, telling someone else, well, you cannot win, but you can try not to be last and make me the winner. Or vice versa, if you're first, you can say to someone else, well, you're fourth, you can become third if you help me guarantee that I will win. And that's extremely disappointing to me. Yeah, we had thought as a group that there would be more significant consequences to the actions that you take throughout the game, and it didn't feel like that at all. 
we had very high expectations for the ending and it did not meet even close to what we thought the ending was going to be. It felt very mechanical. They tried to put a lot of flavor into each of the different options of things that you could do. In the end, it was, did you do this? Yes. It was a checklist. Yeah. Yeah. It literally was a checklist. Yeah. Well, that was the end. I hope they do something with this system. The system, they they call it the clever deck or something. It's a smart, smart system. Yeah, I would be really excited to see them re-implement it into a new game. Yeah, and also maybe with a more daring theme. I mean, they did very well with the theme that they chose. It was not just medieval history-like, but it wasn't classical fantasy either. I liked what they did, but so I would like to see what they could do. Maybe with a more contained setting something akin to a desert island or dead of winter those kind of more contained things i think that the two open options of oh you have this kingdom in this entire continent let them astray from time to time but i really think that the story part is very very good they need to come up with something for the mechanism i think i mean everything's seeming to go pirates so maybe it'll be a pirate theme At the same time, I mean, it's nominated for the Spiel des Jahres, so it's apparently doing well with other groups. (laughs) So I think the reason why it was nominated is because it is so different. I can honestly say in full sincerity that I have never played a game like this before and that it had a lot of different things that made it interesting. I feel like where it faltered for us specifically was that it maybe was a bit too long. But like I said, I would happily play another game from them overall i think my experience was positive i think maybe it would have worked a little better had we had even more people yes i think five would be a crucial number to hit especially if they can change that voting mechanism of them okay i think it's time to move into our discussion for today which is as we were saying IP games. So were you thinking specifically of TV or movies or anything in general that comes from previously existing IP? So I was just thinking just generally. So like I had said, um, the ones that have been popping up in my feed recently were two Scooby-Doo games. So Scooby-Doo Betrayal at Mystery Mansion, which is a re-implementation of Betrayal at House on the Hill. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that would be fun and bring about some silliness to that game. Not that Betrayal takes itself very seriously, but it's more of a like strict horror theme, I guess. Yeah. Whereas Scooby-Doo is a lot lighter and plays around with things. And interestingly enough, Betrayal on the House of the Hill was already retheemed a couple of years ago with another IP, with the D&D Dungeons and Dragons IP. Yep. I actually left out intentionally games like Invasion or XCOM that their IP is from another game. For example, miniature gaming with Games Workshop had spawned a lot of board games using those IP, and video games tend to generate board games quite often. I left those out because I feel that it's a different effort there. You are trying to bring the experience of a game into a different game, although it's a different medium. So I tried to focus on books and movies, etc. And when you mentioned it, I was like, okay, sure. I know that there are a lot, but it would be very easy because I've played very few. But then when I started thinking about it, there are actually quite a few IPs that I have played, some of which that I liked a lot, actually, even those that I don't own. So I wanted just to 
point out that there is certainly a connection between how much I like the IPs and how much I like the games, but more in what I go looking for than in what I like. For example, I did realize when thinking of games about Star Trek that my favorite Star Trek game is Star Trek Panic, which is at the very low end of the complexity pole, and it was fun. But I have heard that there are great games like Star Trek Ascendancy. It's just that it's a big involved game about Star Trek. I'm not a big trackie, so I didn't go look for it. But vice versa, the fact that the game has an IP, and even an IP that I like a lot, is definitely not a guarantee of success with me. And as the bigger counterpoint to this, I want to bring Game of Thrones. I love Game of Thrones. I've read all of the books. I watch all of the TV show, even the last infamous season. And to this day, my favorite game in the Game of Thrones IP is The End of the King, which is basically an abstract game with characters from the show. Because the big one, Game of Thrones, the board game, really fell flat for me. And it does the IP part right, but... It has some problems, which I won't go too much into detail, but basically now things are resolved that I don't particularly love. And I realized that that's good for me. It's good to realize that there are games that I actually really like and know that is not just the IP. So it helps sort my bias, basically. Yeah, so when I was thinking about this, I was thinking of like when I was growing up, often the most common re-themes or IP games that were accessible to me were re-implements or re-themes of Life and Monopoly and Risk. Oh, yeah. So those three were very, very commonly pumping out different IPs. Lord of the Rings Risk. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah, if you wanted anything... You could have Care Bears, Life, or, you know, whatever. Any kind of theme. I think that those were probably the games that really popularized IPs or made them more widely available for people or even been the first experience people had into what an IP was. So I think that that is why I sort of thought about this topic. Yeah, and I think that even after that, for a while, I would say in the 90s and early 2000s, they started developing games that work on their own, that didn't follow the go-around-the-track-or-invade-territory model of Monopoly and things. Or also Talisman was there and things like that. But still, for the longest time, it's a recurring joke in our hobby, but it's certainly true that for the longest time, IP games meant bad games. It meant they didn't get a real game developer, a game designer, And they instead decided to put something together, it will sell because of the IP. And probably they were right in that it would (laughs) sell, but certainly didn't deliver an enjoyable experience for people who were actually looking for a game. I think the symbolic, I don't know if it was really the first one, but I think the symbolic change for that is usually credited to be Battlestar Galactica, the board game. And to me, that was a revelation. That was, for example, a game that I played before knowing the show. I knew of the show. I hadn't watched the show. And the game delivered, again, what we were talking about before, the secret role and the secret teams and not knowing who is on your part and the paranoia, which is crucial to the experience of the TV show in a game that didn't take any shortcut. It was hard to learn, 
hard to master, a lot of rules, definitely not, oh, just let's hope someone picks it up from the shelf and <laughs> buy it. It was expensive. It was distributed by a niche company, Fantasy Flight Game. Well, one could argue that it's still a niche company because it's not Asbro. Certainly at the time, they had done Twilight Imperium. They had done a few other things, but they hadn't expanded into the churning out games about Star Wars every year. And it was a big risk, I'm sure, for them. And I remember the impact that it had. But now, actually, there are a bunch of games with good IPs and good games to the point that that's not the expectation anymore. Prosper all the ones that are taking these old games that we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Joe's and Jurassic Park and Orified, which is not directly an IP, but a mismatch of IPs from horror movies from the 30s and the 20s. I have heard that even the Funko Pop IP games are actually not that bad. Very simple, but not that bad. Mm. You have played them? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know that I would go that far. Have you played them? Yeah. Oh, I haven't. I was just referring to reviews. I played them at Gen Con. They had them in the BGG hot games room. We played through part of a scenario because it was very dry. Very, very dry. It was the Golden Girls one. Oh. And it was like trying to run around with a cheesecake. It was not great. The one that I actually did like that was an IP that was also released at the same time as those was Unmatched. Which is the one with you fight different characters one against the other, right? Unmatched, where you're playing different characters who are trying to defeat each other. And that one was fun. I enjoyed that a lot. We played Bigfoot versus Robin Hood. Oh, yeah. So putting together these two things that are very clear and very separate but it was fun i enjoyed it it was a tactical sort of movement game that was simple in the rules but fun i enjoyed those but not the funko pops <laughs> okay so i think that again when i'm looking at an ip game i am definitely looking for both things i am looking for a good game as i mentioned before there are games that even if very good on their own, they didn't work for me. Especially when an IP game is really well done and embraces the game, I think it really enhances the experience if you like the IP. And I think that either of those missing is a miss for the game. Meaning that obviously a game that doesn't work is not enough to be saved by the IP. But I think that a game that if you play it and don't care about the IP, you have the exact same experience that if you really like it, is not a great IP game. And that's what I was mentioning before with, for example, that little game that I really, really like, the Hand of the King Game of Thrones game. It's not a great IP game because while it's very fun, it's a short abstract game for three to four players. It works very well for what it is, but it cares not one iota whether you are a fan of the IP or not and you know the characters. There are some special effects that you can recognize if you know the story, but it's really minor. So that's not a good example of an IP game because I think when someone buys a game with a specific theme, they want that to be reflected in the experience that they have. But when trying to choose what my favorite wears, I was struggling with a different problem, which is, was I focusing on my favorite games that happen to have an IP, no matter how good that IP is translated to be, or should I focus on games that are bring their IP to life? And I decided to do the second one to try and 
help me and have a direction. And that left out some games that I really, really like. For example, I really, really like World Without End, which comes from the IP of Camp Follett's book. But when you play it, it's just another theming for a medieval building game. It has innovative design elements, but not in the rendition. So I focused on things that I think bring the IP to life while still being a very good game. What was the prominent decision in choosing your favorites? Mostly just ones that I had played that best captured the essence of the IP and translated them into a game. Mm -hmm. So that was what I really looked at. With one last thing, I will mention that I left out two things that I think are both very relevant under both of our rules. One is Dune. Dune is a great game, but I actually prefer the version that is not IP-based, the <laughs> reading of Rex, because of how they change the rules and the game improvement. And even the theme, I, I'm not that enamored with Dune. I like the book. So that didn't work well for an IP game for me because it's, oh, this is a great IP game. I actually prefer the one that is not IP based. So that didn't work. And the other one was the Lord of the Ring, the card game, because it uses the IP just as a basis and then builds all of the scenarios, not necessarily from the things that people know and love about it. Actually, they then went back and brought the main story in a separate campaign, but the basic game was not inspired by that. So my number three is actually Jaws. Okay. It's a game that meets both my, I like the movie, not enough to quote or to recognize the quotes from it. And the game goes back to one of the style of games that I liked, which is the movement. It's divided in two acts, which works very well narratively. You play two almost independent games, but the effect of the first act is felt in the second act. In the first one, the shark is moving around the island and eating off swimmers, literally picking them up and moving secretly. And Hopper, Brody, and whoever the third person is, I don't remember the name, are trying to hit him with barrels. And when you hit him twice, the acts end. Or when he eats nine swimmers, the act ends. And depending on how many swimmers he ate, he's stronger in the second act where he's trying to destroy your ship. The board becomes just the boat. He's trying to destroy the boat or eat the three people before they kill him. And there, instead of a sequent hidden movement thing, is uh, trying to bluff and double bluff. Where will he come up and are we ready to shoot him at the right place? Or if you are the shark, I should go here because they are weaker there, but they are probably expecting me to go there so I couldn't go elsewhere. And it plays in about an hour altogether, plays well with two, but there is enough decision to split the crew players into more. You don't feel like you're simply playing a two-player game with more. It's thematic enough. It has nice meeples. I like the experience. It's also distributed in general distribution, which means it can reach people who are not usually into our hobby. It's in target. I really like it. Yeah, I like the narrative arc of it that you are playing essentially two separate games, but the one game leads into the other game. I think it's very well done. So what's your number three? My number three would probably be, I know that this is a bit blasphemous, but it's going to be Monopoly Gamer. I haven't played that version. So... Monopoly Gamer is a Mario-inspired version of Monopoly. You aren't really buying properties. You're trying to collect coins, 
and go around the board and then defeat bosses as you pass the place where you started. And you had like different little people that you could purchase that had different powers. You're essentially trying to defeat the bosses, but you're also trying to be the best and get the most coins. So it's been a while since I played it, but it is one that did make a positive impression with me. I only played it with two and it was very clear playing it that it needed more than two players. So I haven't revisited it in a while. But it is one that I would not be ashamed to impart on my gamer friends. (laughs) (laughs) But so does it still involve rolling two dice and moving around the track? Yeah. Okay, that tends to be the, the biggest objection more than the buying of properties and things like that. Okay, so my number two, and here I tried very hard to try and stay away from games that I mention a lot, but with this particular thing, I couldn't. I consider, for example, Spartacus, which was a game that made a big impact on me when I played it, but I ended up never getting it because we don't care that much about the IP. We tried watching the show and we actually didn't like it. And so, again, as I was saying before, since it is such a well-made game that brings the show to life, it didn't work for us. And so I fell back onto my Star Wars passion both for the games and for the saga. While I think my favorite game in the Star Wars universe is the card game, I think the game that brings the theme to life the most and works perfectly, as I mentioned before, is Star Wars Rebellion. I won't go into details of that. If people want to know about it, I talked about it twice (laughs) before. A few times, a few times. And so I won't go into the detail, but again, it involves hidden movement, asymmetrical powers. You have a lot of control on what you do, and there is a lot of anxiously expecting to see what the other player will do. There is a lot to manage, and it's really, really thematic, flavorful. It works both as the theme, and it's a great game on its own. As I mentioned before, I came to change my mind the first time i played it i said well i don't think i would ever want to play it with someone who's not a fan of the show now if someone likes involved and heavy two-player games they must play it until they have an allergy to everything (laughs) star wars but they really really need to try it i would try that game but do you feel like when you play that game that it can be like a runaway or it Mm -hmm. feels like that sometimes to us no meaning that to run away on one side for example on the board presence on the production of units and things like that it means you're focusing resources on that and not on either getting points if you're the rebels or preventing the rebels from getting points if you're the empire or vice versa in keeping yourself hidden if you're the rebels or finding them out if you're the empire. And so it feels that one aspect of the game, someone is running away with it, but someone else is usually at the better advantage with others there have been some games where we have called it but it wasn't because someone was running away it was usually okay next turn i can do this this and that you can only stop two out of three one of them will give me the win usually i lose but no actually it's very very well balanced there are a lot of things to keep track of it is built asymmetrically so for example there is often the case where The rebels have no hope of winning any battle, but that's not what they're trying to do. And so, no, I feel it very, very balanced in that regard. That's good, because that's my one criticism of longer two-player games. I feel like sometimes it can feel like a runaway. Oh, well, yeah. And I actually don't think necessarily that to be a flaw, a game that I really like, Twilight Struggle, it often happens that mid-game you realize that there is no way you can win. 
actually that's a merciful way of it's a game that ends on points after the 10th round but if you ever are 20 points ahead of the other player you just win the game flat out but even without that when we used to play the physical version there was often the case in which someone would say okay i concede let's play something else let's not play this out and in a two-player game i don't mind that but this is not the case for star wars rebellion actually my number two is the morty zone it's a rick and morty themed game that is a dice game mm-hmm. and it's fun it is a roll and write and it has little elements that make it feel like the show just very chaotic and very what's going on kind of lends itself to a roll and write because roll and writes are very luck based well a good chunk of them are luck based because your actions are always going to be dependent upon what you roll so it is interesting that they push the luck based theme of roll and writes even further by adding different like events that happen so that one i feel like sort of encompasses the feeling of the cartoon and the feeling of what is happening (laughs) so i like it it's um it's it's simple and it's quick and yeah i thought it was enjoyable for a roll and write yeah and i think that while this specifically would definitely be not something that i want to try i don't like the cartoon and i don't like roll and write so that's definitely (laughs) not the combination for me but i think that that speaks to as we said things started with okay let's just re-theme the main staples of gaming to whatever ip then we evolve into let's flood the market with whatever things we can collate together and push it on the market then we went into the okay let's start with the ip and try to develop these big games the game of throne the bsg that well dune was actually much much older so that would actually be the first successful ip game from another era and all of the star wars and the star trek so start with the theme and come up with big and solid mechanics but then recently we have seen a lot of IP-based games on Doctor Who. There is another Star Trek based on time traveling and things like that. But in a way, even the Prosper ones that I do like, which they try to do both. They try to be thematic, but at the same time, the goal is not to necessarily recreate the experience no matter what, like Star Wars Rebellion and all of that jazz, but instead to bring something that is also accessible. And I think that there is a lot of that out there. I I couldn't think of any, but I'm sure I have played some games where the game works, it's fun, and if you know the show, it's an added bonus because you can recognize some things and laugh about it. And that's good enough. I would like to rescind my second game. Okay. My second one is going to be Villainous. Oh, yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Villainous is probably one of my favorite games because it's so accessible for people. I like the different win conditions that are very thematic to the specific villain character, which, again, you do need to know a bit of the story to really fully appreciate what's going on. But I haven't gotten the new one yet that just came out this year, but I have all of the other ones. So I really like them. I think that they are fun. They pit the villains against each other, trying to have different enemies drawn. And the enemies, of course, are the good guys. So they get played onto the villains boards to try and disrupt their plans 
and ultimately their win conditions to delay someone from running away with it. So I really like Villainous. I think another reason why I like it is because it's mean and you go into it knowing it's mean and everyone knows it's mean. Yeah, I have some issues with the gameplay actually, but I really enjoy it. It's one of those where I don't necessarily think that tabooting is great in the game, but I always have fun playing it, (laughs) especially because it's surprisingly thematic for how accessible it is, meaning that it takes a very simple approach. You move and take an action and accumulate power to play cards, but the winning condition of each character are so different that you want at least to try just another character, but since now we have, what, 10, 12 characters, something like that, and more on the way, it means that you can play 10 times before even just trying all of them, and then, oh, I like that, I want to try that again, or, well, that game in which I played Ursula was not great, let's try that again, and all of a sudden you're playing the game 20 times, which is not nothing, right? I am actually surprised, I thought this would be your number one. What is your number one, then? So my number one is going to be the different legendary games because I feel like legendary really is a solid system. What legendary is, is a deck builder. It's the semi-cooperative working together to fend off bad people. Are you thinking of the legendary, all of them, or just the encounter series, like the Buffy and the aliens and all of that? Actually, Buffy isn't an encounters. Okay. Buffy's a regular one, but I do really like the legendary Buffy. It feels very thematic. It feels like they really thought about the little tweaks to the game that they wanted to add to make it true to the show. I think legendary in general is what I'm going with Mm -hmm. just because there's so many different implementations and every single one that I've played, I've enjoyed. So I played the X-Files one, which was different and fun because things would come out and you could like pre-scan them to try and like understand what was going to happen and resolve the mystery and all this stuff. So that was a fun part about that. The Legendary Encounters Alien one was fun. I haven't played that in quite some time, but I do remember really enjoying it. Yeah, it was my favorite Aliens game before Nemesis. Then we got rid of it, but I really, really liked it. It had a couple of very clever twists, I think. Yeah. And then Legendary Buffy also, which is the only one that I own. Yeah, and I really like it. I considered actually Legend Encounters Alien. I didn't include it first again because now I have other games that scratch the same itch. And second, because for some reason in my mind, I keep, I notice by my list, pushing out card games like Star Wars LCG, Lord of the Ring LCG, but even Harry Potter, the deck builder. I feel that maybe it is because games that are strongly card-based are easier to make thematic, I feel. But that means that the ones that do work very well. And certainly Legendary works very well. I think I like the Encounter Family. I do realize that, well, I I did realize when you told me, I didn't know that Buffy is not an Encounter one, but it plays like one. It plays much more like the X-Files or the Aliens than it plays like the main superhero legendary. Right. They actually don't particularly 
enjoyed. But yeah, very, very good. Okay, my number one, again, no surprise. Again, I tried to consider alternatives, but there was really no alternative. There is no other game that brings together TV show or a book as well, I think, as Battles La Galactica. It's also a very solid game, but compared to Star Wars Rebellion, I think you could technically build it as some other guerrilla being chased by a big power. You would have to change everything, of course, all of the name of the characters, change the galaxies to something else. But I could conceive that Battlestar Galactica, the only way to make it into something else would be to make something that has robots that look like humans and you just don't call them silence. The paranoia that it builds, it's exactly from the show. Every element of the game as both a gaming meaningfulness and a TV show meaningfulness. Every time I've played it with people who hadn't played it, who hadn't seen the show that didn't impact their enjoyment of the game. Actually, I had friends who went on and watched the show because they had played the game. That was true also for us. When we started playing it a lot, most of our group hadn't seen all of the show and the game brought us to it. I have mentioned this before, but it's the biggest hidden role, hidden team game that is out there. It uh, uses all of these mechanics of you receive a card that is a loyalty that can change throughout the game. You have a special character with a distinct power, distinct resources. Like You have so many things to keep track of. You can have special roles like so you have the character you have the secret role but you can also be the president or the admiral and it's a lot it's big it's long it's hard to teach and that's probably the biggest problem to the game not the length of the game but the length of the teach it was packaged with weird expansion of which some parts don't work but when it comes to delivering the experience of a tv show or of a story I have seen nothing else that does it better. Some come close, but nothing that does it better. The game is not perfect. I think it's a little too long. I think it can be punishing. It's not particularly accessible to the point that we often end up playing it mostly with people who have already played it. It's not one that we introduce to a lot of people, but it is still, in my opinion, clearly the best implementation of an IP game. So things I would like to mention about Battlestar Galactica. One is very out of print. Oh, yeah, very much. Very out of print. And if you are looking for a copy of it, it will put you back at least $300. What? Yeah. That part I didn't know. Okay. Very, very expensive now. So fingers crossed for a reprint. Secondly, I also went and looked at the TV show after playing it a few times and really enjoyed the TV show and really appreciated how everything from the TV show was incorporated into this game and made sense game-wise. Even from the beginning of you get your character and they have a special ability or a special power or they do something, even those small things were awesome to see, like the president being sick or different little things that made sense in the game to try and balance things. But also, I really thought that they did a great job, great, great job with it. Yeah, and the way, again, each character has their own power that work on a mechanical level. So if you don't know who they are, they still work. This character is good at drawing more cards. This character, it's great at making this kind of actions, but has this inherent flaw here and there. And they make for a balanced, interesting choice. 
even if you don't know, but then if you do know and you do understand why Gaius Paltar has more loyalty cards than others, and so he could be on the wrong side, or why Roslyn is a very effective president on one way, but very slow at interacting with the bureaucracy of it on the other way, it really comes to life in a different way. And I think it's amazing. Or the one guy who can't eject people. Oh, yeah. Or the one person that can shoot someone else. That's also fun. Yes, I really like it. It's just, it is a beast of a game. And it is probably one of the least accessible games I've ever played. Yeah, especially among games that want to be thematic. Right. Without going into heavy economic games, it's probably the hardest to teach. Also, I think what makes it really, really, really hard is that it has a trader role. If you were playing Battlestar Galactic as a cooperative game, or even just as a competitive game where everything is revealed, it wouldn't be that hard. But the problem is that you need to get the explanation airtight Because when someone is the trader, they cannot find themselves in the situation of having to ask, how do I sabotage this again? (laughs) Or how does this work again? And people will ask, why don't you just do that? That is clearly better, right? You need to be able to have a dominance of the rules to be able to play the double game. And now I really, really want to play it. (laughs) Okay, so we did title this. IP game successes and fails. So do you have any fails where the game was just sad? I will start to give you a moment to think. Yeah. And my biggest fail, because I could only think of one that just really stuck out in my brain that I was like, never under any circumstances would I ever play this again. I would not consider it a game. They slapped something together. As we discussed before, they kind of just threw it all together, hoping that the IP would carry it, and that would be the Oregon Trail card game. <laughs> it was horrible. I played it. I will never play it again. Basically, I died two turns into the game, mm-hmm. and then Scott just played the rest of the game himself. Well, to be fair, it is supposed to be a painful experience. <laughs> sure, sure. I'm joking. But all the fun parts of the actual Oregon Trail game which I remember playing on my Apple computer (laughs) with a floppy disk and being so excited about all that. I remember all the hunting and the gathering and the dealing with random events and things like that. So I really like all of that of the game. And I feel like this was just random events, random events. Can you deal with it? No, you can't. You're dead. So (laughs) it just was not great. I would never play it again. So... I'm certainly not looking forward to ever try this. I have seen it played. I think Anna played it at one time. After this review, even more, I don't want to play it. So for me, there are two fails. One is, I mentioned it already, Game of Thrones. The game, I know it has a lot of fans. For me, I didn't like it. I didn't like it to the point that when some friends decided to try it again, Anna included, I stayed out of it. I sit with them. I had a good night eating pizza and watching them play. (laughs) And the problem is that it comes this close to be something that I would adore. And I do understand what people like, people who do like it. I do understand that it is diplomacy with more rules, that is very thematic, that playing the different houses feels different. I have a big problem with some of the resolutions. I won't go into details, but that's why it's 
a fail for me because it's a game that is this close to be excellent. And the other one is instead a game that I played a lot. We're now in the process of getting rid of it. It's Homeland, the board game. So first of all, Homeland is not something that I enjoyed that much. We watched some of the series. It was enjoyable, but it's not something that is near and dear to my heart. So I didn't have that great expectations. And the game in itself, it has some flaws, but it works. It's a one-hour Patasol-like game. You have teams and you're trying to achieve missions, but some people actually want them to fail. It has some minor gameplay fails, but I think where it comes to an IP fail is that they secure the rights to the TV show. They use stills, which I'm not a fan of. I much prefer art, but fine. They use stills to illustrate the characters. And then all of the missions, that is all of the cards that you look at for the entirety of the game in the middle of the board is just black cards with yellow writing on it. And it's like... Come on, you're not even trying to pretend that you care about the theme. You just decided, oh, there are traders, therefore this will be a trader game. And everything in the game is very non-thematic, to the point that it's a better game than a good thematic game. I feel like if I were invested in Homeland as an IP, I would hate it, absolutely hate it. Since that was not what I was looking for into the game, it was fine. Again, we played it a dozen or so times. Uh, last few times, we had figured out ways in which it really didn't work. Basically, you can win by focusing on very secondary things. And so it becomes what you should do because it's easier to achieve. And we started thinking, oh, we could fix this or maybe this could fix that. But when you are at that point, it's time to let it go. So this way you made me end up on a downward note with things that we didn't like rather than... <laughs> But that helped because I am, otherwise I would now be in BSG withdrawal. So it's fine. I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. If you enjoy it, please share it with your friends. Like, subscribe, share on anywhere that you find this. And you can also find us on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, all under Board Game Gambit. If you have any questions, comments, or any suggestions, we would love to hear from you. And so signing out, I'm Nathan. I'm Jackie. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.